Welcome back. Listen to Tide Smart Talk with Steve O. News Talk WLOB 1310 AM and now 100.5 FM. Won't back down. Intro music for our guest today. Please join me in welcoming Mayor Ethan Strimling. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you. Was that song for me or for you? You said I beat you up the last time I was on the show. So I, I said I was slightly bruised. So no. are you uh, today not going to back down, going to hold your game? Yeah, I, 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 I didn't come into the uh, the interview thinking I was going to back down. I think the uh, producer picked that out for you. Oh, all right. Good. And so well, I, think, I don't remember beating you up last time, so I thought we had a lot of fun. I, th- I think every time you and I have known each other for a few years, we've kind of intersected politically a couple of times, and back at Learning Works, I met with you a few times. Yeah. We've uh, intersected during some community things and city things, so... Uh, every conversation I've ever had with you has been interesting. Well, that's good. And so that's what we're going into today's interview with. Did you ever resolve your, I think the last time you had an issue where the local community, your sign was too small. Well, that was- Did you ever get that resolved? That was was the most remarkable, like, uh, political battle where they were saying your sign was too small. Well, you know something about political battles, but here, here in Falmouth, the, uh, the, the lettering on one element of the sign was an inch too small. And so- (laughs) If if any of the local affiliates had news helicopters like they do in major markets, I'm convinced they would have been flying up above going, you know, reporting live from, you know, Route 1. The Tide Smart <laughs> sign is one inch too small because there was a lot of uh, interest in that. But, mm. yeah, it's resolved. Yeah, great. Yeah. Excellent. Did you make it bigger or did they... Did you get the zoning to change so that now we can have signs that are an inch smaller than they were before? I, I've, I've, I wasn't successful in rewriting the law, but we worked something out. And as you know, with politics, sometimes it's just a matter of time and talking about it. And then sooner or later, something gets worked out and you kind of move on. So, And, and municipal politics is a different animal than anything you could ever imagine. So, Yeah, politics in general. I mean, what's happening now with the... You know, I want to talk to you about the national stage, and I want to talk about, obviously, what's happening locally. Uh, for those just tuning in, we have Mayor Ethan Strimling, who was uh, elected mayor of Portland just about a year ago. He's in the first, finishing up the first year of a four-year term, and we want to talk about kind of the city government and the, tr- the transition that happened a few years ago when, by charter, Portland residents voted to make the mayor position less ceremonial as one of the city councilors and, you know, the vernacular is make it a stronger mayor, and a full-time mayor. And so I want to talk about that. But for people just tuning in, I think everyone's been kind of generally familiar with your background. You've been both in terms of media and on television and written columns. People, I think, are familiar with Ethan Strimling uh, from years of service. But Quick background of where you grew up, and then we'll, I want to talk about some of your uh, earlier positions in political roles, and then talk about your role now as mayor in the city of Portland. Sure. Uh, I grew up in New York City. Uh, moved to Maine first, uh, sort of officially about around 1987, uh, but I'd been coming to Maine a lot. One of my mother's best friends lived up here, so we came up here many times during the winter just uh, for the holidays or maybe in the summer for a week. And uh, I went to the University of Maine. I had been going to school in New York. I went to Juilliard. I was in the theater back in the day. And uh, theater school dropout, went to the woods, hid out in Sedgwick, Maine for a while. And then I ended up going to the University of Maine to get my undergraduate degree. Well, what was the interest? Juilliard is, you know, the iconic school in theater. What was the interest? Were you involved in theater as a kid and you thought that may be something, but then the path changed and you just, you know? 
Yeah, uh, my father's an actor and my grandmother was an actress. So I kind of grew up in a theater family. And I think it was one of those moments where when you're growing up and you sort of see what your father does and you're not sure if you're doing it because it's kind of what you know versus what you want. And uh, I had some talent at it. So people were sort of encouraging me along that path. But I think at age 19, uh, I went to, uh, I got into Juilliard at age 17, which is very young. Usually you go to college for a few years and then go there. And I think I was too young. I just was not ready to sort of say that this is going to be the rest of my life. And uh, I said, I want to take some time away from it. I actually did some theater up at uh, the University of Maine, had fun, did West Side Story, Romeo wow. and Juliet, had a few uh, fun productions up there. And well, this uh, is this never is really look back. This is one other element where we have something in common. And did I, you, were you in uh, West Side Story? No, Deb. If I told you about my theater background, oh, I thought you were in West Side Story. No, no, no. My theater, you know, like uh, Ethan, who classically trained at the Juilliard School. I attended Needham High School. Yes, uh, just outside of Boston. Yes, I was on the five-year program with a heavy focus on woodshop and square dancing. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. But there was an all-girls junior college nearby, Mount Ida. I think it was. I can't even remember. But. They had advertised at our school they needed male actors to put on a production. And a buddy of mine, Steve Gormley, said, hey, this would be a great way to meet girls. Because <laughs> yeah. otherwise, yeah. The, you know, there was nothing happening in Needham. It wasn't really meeting girls. And so yeah. we went and tried out, and it was anything goes. And I was like the captain. And I couldn't sing, couldn't act. And the whole idea. Could you dance? I couldn't do anything. It was. Uh, then you must have looked good. Didn't even look good. Oh, come on. No, no. And, and it was, it was, I really thought it was going to be this magical experience. And it really was me just kind of standing there mumbling. But did during, you get the girl? No. You no. didn't even get the girl. Didn't even get the girl. I, you know, we've, oh, you know, man. That is yeah. kind of, that's a drag. Well, I, uh, it was definitely a drag. And, you know, did, so, it, did it at least, um, did at least get the theater bug out of your system, and at that point you knew this was you were able to cross that off the list as well, uh, an occupational choice. Yeah, theater and acting is a funny thing where the the people who do it and do it really well, uh, it really is a skill. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, it's sure. you know when you look at great actors or regional, even you know, uh, a Gunkwit Playhouse, they do some great productions, and when you see somebody doing it poorly, like myself. It's, it was so that to realize how hard it is. The folks yeah. at Mount Ida asked me to leave. I think there was like, <laughs> I think, there, I think we were scheduled for two shows yeah. and they were like, uh, captain, After the first one, you were yeah, there. they were like, captain, you need to go back to Woodshop at Needham High. <laughs> but, by the way, we have uh, mayor, Portland mayor, Ethan Strimling here. So after that, after spending time in New York, going to Juliet and going to UMaine, what was it that kind of moved you into the direction of uh, being involved with politics and government? Well, from the University of Maine, I I had been doing some work in the state politically. I'd sort of gotten involved in some local campaigns, but then I really got involved in Tom Andrews' campaign for U.S. Congress back in 1990 in a Democratic primary. And he, he, for me, became a real mentor, kind of hero, somebody who had strong progressive values and was able to win, communicate well to voters, and I think represent the kind of values that people wanted. And uh, that was 1990. We want to come from behind victory in the primary. Very exciting uh, for a young person. That's just it gives you everything you need. And it was hard to let go of. Once I graduated from the University of Maine, I actually went off, got my master's at Harvard in education, working with at-risk kids, because I'd always sort of had these two paths of really wanting to do educational work and political work. And so I got my master's 
And then I actually went down to work for Tom down in Congress and ran a pack down there and then came up here and ran a campaign. But then I got the job as the director of Learning Works, where we work with at-risk kids and low-income families. And I was there for 20 years, even while I was serving in the Senate. And that was really, uh, without question, some of the most important work I've done in my life. Uh, there's, there, there's nothing that will change you more than seeing a kid who was homeless or in jail walk across the stage and get a GED and uh, yeah, that, hopefully go the, on to the build work some stability. At, uh, and the success with Learning Works has been really uh, commendable. For, for people that may not be familiar, uh, you were there as the CEO and the leader of Learning Works, and then when you were elected mayor, uh, you left Learning Works. But briefly describe what Learning Works is and kind of the scope, because I think it's worth giving some attention to the good work and how important kids are, and especially kids that come from either socioeconomic disadvantaged situations, giving them opportunities and giving them access to, uh, to education. Yeah, so Learning Works actually been around for almost 50 years. It started out as a place called Portland West Neighborhood Planning Council. It was really kind of a neighborhood organization that grew out of the fact that the middle class and lower income folks were getting squeezed out of the West End. Uh, it was really being gentrified through some of those cycles. And originally it was kind of buying up properties to say, hey, let's put some affordable housing. Let's keep some affordable housing right in this neighborhood, keep it diverse. And slowly but surely became kind of a community organization, social service agency, and then ultimately we really morphed into an educational institution. And so in that capacity, work with at-risk kids, high school kids have an alternative high school. We also do after-school programming in elementary schools, working with kids who, you know, falling behind. Maybe you're a third grader, but you're still reading at the first grade level, so we're going to try to give you that extra time to catch up. We also had a lot of adult programs for immigrants and refugees, folks who needed to work to get language skills as they were working towards citizenship and building stability. So Learning Works is a phenomenal place. Uh, I love it. Obviously, I'm not there anymore. They've got new leadership in place doing a great job, but it's a place very close to my heart. And uh, as I said earlier, the most powerful work I've ever done is, you know, nothing uh, that I've accomplished politically comes close to the kind of emotional satisfaction you can get from literally seeing a kid who might be homeless and in jail take those steps slowly but surely and then walk across the stage with a cap and gown get their ged and uh, get a job that's great you, you mentioned the, the juxtaposition to your work politically from 2002 to 2008 you're a state senator representing portland um what was that experience like and since then, uh, you've been very involved in terms of uh, political commentary, both in terms of a uh, column that you've written and also um, uh, for a number of years worked as an analyst in Channel 6. And I think Phil Harriman and you did a um, he said, she said, or right, left, elephant, donkey thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Agree to disagree, we called it for a while. Fantastic. Political brew. And, yeah. But from... from being a state senator then, and I want to talk about the juxtaposition of where we are politically now, both in Augusta and nationally, what was, you know, in that six-year period, uh, you, you, you held leadership roles in various committees, and so you were involved in really the structure of our, our state's political system. What was that experience like then? And then let's flip to where we are today in terms of how we get things done, or in many cases, don't get things done. Uh, it, it was a great experience being in the Senate. I was chair of the Labor Committee and chair of the Criminal Justice Committee and served on taxation for uh, six years. And so obviously in those committees really trying to deal with working class issues, 
we were able to, back in those days, pass consistent minimum wage increases. In fact, the last minimum wage increase that the legislature passed uh, was back, I think, 2007. And my final term um, sponsored that bill with the, my co-chair on the Labor Committee. And uh, those were days, you know, when Democrats were in the Blaine House and controlled both bodies. And so it was a bit more functional, I would say. At least you had the ability to move something through because you had one party. Since then, it's been really divided. And we've had a Republican governor, Democratic legislature. I think there was one term that the governor had a Republican legislature. Uh, and I think that's part of the real difference today is that there's real division out there. You even look at Obama in his first two years, how much he was able to accomplish for the country when he had a legislature that was supporting his policies. Now, we'll see because Donald Trump also has a Congress that is uh, Republican. Now, it's not as strong of a majority as what Obama had, so it will still have some conflict there. But uh, when I was in the Senate, it really was a time when we were um, – very united around the direction of the city. I think Governor Baldacci was a good leader for us, a good leader for the party. And uh, those of us who were on the progressive side of the aisle, we certainly got frustrated because we wanted things uh, perhaps a little more progressive than what we were able to accomplish. But we built some good coalitions and was able to, you know, create a balance. So. How would you describe progressive? Because I think there's a lot of political la labels and a lot of different political interests keep popping up. And whether it's liberal or conservative or progressive, but, you know, you've used the term and it's a fairly popular term. But, but for the context of our legislature, you know, how would you describe kind of progressive ideology? And, you know, is it, can a person be a Republican and be progressive or is it something that just has to align with the Democratic Party and does the, do the Democrats own that branding or can you be conservative and be progressively conservative? I think it's up to the individual to decide what terminology works best for them. For me, progressive uh, is a policy that recognizes that the government plays a role in trying to make sure that equality exists, that the income gap is reduced, that the economy doesn't uh, function without some kind of bumpers and parameters that the government plays a role in creating. And that's where uh, it's not that the government steps in and um, necessarily is the only one that is uh, helping people, but the government recognizes or progressives recognize that there's a partnership that has to occur between the government and the private sector in order to really accomplish what we want for our economy. So that's my sense of why I use the word progressive. It's also, I think, in my mind, most not mostly, but fundamentally around economic issues and trying to make sure that the widening gap between the poorest, uh, between the wealthy and the rest of us, we've got to find a way to try to close that gap. It's, it's going to destroy the country if we don't. When you talk about the gap, you're talking about specifically income inequality or just, uh, or is it less about financial disparity and more about power? Because it feels like many of our institutions over the last few decades have shifted where people in power in all areas, in terms of uh, how laws are made and judiciary and different business sectors from healthcare to education, people in power, when they have power, tend to want to legislate or move in the direction that either reinforces their power or increases their power. I, I, and I, I hear yeah. a lot about the income thing and the wealthy thing, and, mm. and I think it's less, and certainly money and financial power and wherewithal 
is a driver of political power or business power. But in many cases, I think it's just an abuse of power. And sometimes it's, it's, it correlates to wealth and the disparity of wealth and being sensitive to human issues, whether it's food insecurity or, hmm. uh, or other areas in healthcare and social services. But in many times, there are people in politics on the national level and sometimes on the state level that have amassed political capital as opposed to financial. And it's that power that, I don't want to say it corrupts, but it corrupts the process as much as the money. I, certainly, I, I don't disagree with that statement. I, I do mean it mostly from an income place, but I think you are looking at what causes that, and I think that's an important part of the conversation. How is the power not distributed equally? Subsequently, the wealth is not distributed equally. That's, I, I think you you have put your finger on as direct a correlation of cause and effect as there is, and I think that's what we're trying to confront, trying to figure out how the 99%, as it were, gets more power to make sure that the income gap does not widen even further. But there's no doubt that the income gap is directly related to the power gap. Uh, you're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve on News Talk, WLOB, 1310 AM, 100.5. Speaking of power and income, since we're on the subject, question two uh, a few weeks ago, and I'm paraphrasing what the ballot wording was, but it was, for those, do you support... Uh, an incremental tax of 3% for those who earn over $200,000 a year. And then the wording was in support of education. So the wording, you know, ballot questions and how they're worded are always contentious. And I think our secretary of state has the final, uh, has the kind of final word because, you know, words matter and the nuance matters. Uh, based on you being involved with progressive politics for years and just talking about it, were you in support of question two? And, um, and if so, why? And if not, why not? Absolutely. It was one of the, I, I would say question two, three, and four were the ones that I was most concerned about. Two was around uh, making sure we can fully fund our schools. Three was around the background checks. And four was around the minimum wage. But both two and four were really about this income gap. And what we have seen in the state as Governor LePage has reduced income tax on the wealthiest is the income gap widen. And I think what we have to look at is how do we try to find ways uh, to fix that and putting a 3% surcharge saying that, you know, uh, you said some, surcharge and I think it was worded surcharge and there was pushback because it's a tax. Well, tax it, is fine, but it's a tax. I got no, I got no problem with the word tax. Yeah, so. I don't, I don't want to be, because words do matter. Yeah. And, and, it, it was, you know, surcharge makes it sound a little more kind of innocent or a little, or, or well, let, let's make abstract. it even more real. Okay. It's 30 bucks per thousand dollars you earn, right? Sure. That's what it was. So if you make a thousand dollars over, you're going to have to pay $30. That seemed eminently fair and legitimate because what that money would go towards is toward making sure that our kids get the kind of education that they need and perhaps even reducing property taxes at the local level. Not only perhaps, I have no doubt it will. If you increase the amount of funding going to the local communities, places like Portland, we could see upwards of 10 to $11 million. I guarantee you that some portion of that will be used to make sure we can provide the more adequate education we need, universal pre-K, paying debt service on trying to rebuild our elementary schools that are aging and old, right. uh, these kind of issues that are important for our kids. But we'd also probably take half of that and drop the mill rate, which would save hundreds of dollars on somebody's tax bill. Because 
property taxes are regressive, right? Property taxes hit middle-income people much harder than income taxes. Income taxes inherently are more progressive. So, so I, can put, I, can, I can put you down for a supporting question, too. Then let me mark this down. You bet. Um, I was against and three it. And three or four. Well, well, we'll go with the trifecta. Uh, I had a different view. I don't know if this would be if, if I could play Phil Harriman here uh, for agree <laughs> to disagree for for a moment. But I thought it was an awful idea. And I thought it was not an awful idea to focus on education, which is a critical uh, element. And for Maine to kind of break the cycle that we're in right now, this economic uh, kind of, I don't want to call it a death spiral, but it's certainly a, a downward spiral. The, the, the opposition I had was question two was driven by, promoted by, managed by, marketed by the main um, teachers association, which aside from the fact that it's associated with education, which is a good thing, it's also a special interest group. And whether, whether we both agree that education is a good interest or a bad interest, it's a, it's, a, it's a particular interest. And when you're talking about economics or tax, there's some zero-sum elements where people in healthcare can feel like their interest is greater than specific, specific educational needs. The problem I had with question two was, as, as a citizen referendum, when you had 98 or 99% of the people voting on it, not impacting by it on a special interest, I think it's like bad policy and bad precedent. And if I... But they are impacted by it. They're going to see more funding for their schools. They're positively impacted by it. They're not negative. That's good policy. but, But why not make it, if you said to, you know, why not have another referendum in a couple of years and say, how about another 5% for people who make over 300,000? And so there would only be... We'd make that decision then. Who's we? The people. Uh, but of course, the, it, it would be like if I had a referendum, let's drop taxes 10%. The people, that's why- We had why, those and people rejected them. I know, but that's why we have a representative uh, democracy because there are many questions that shouldn't go to the people. Well, there, okay. there, there, are, there are many questions that, you know, the legislature- should make those hard decisions on education. And when they don't? And when they don't, then the, the people should elect people that do. That's the way the process. You don't short-circuit it by saying, hey, people. If you wanna, okay, if you want to debate whether or not. 99% I, of the people aren't, aren't paying more taxes love, by voting yay. I would love for the legislature to do its job. As I said to you before, the last time we had raised the minimum wage in the state of Maine was back in 2007 when I sponsored a bill. I haven't been in the legislature for almost 10 years. Now, the legislature failed to do its job over and over and over, and the governor. And the people said, you know what? We need a raise. You failed to do your job. It's in our constitution that we're allowed to do it this way, and we're going to do it this way. Now, I would rather that the legislature do its job, but it didn't, and the people rose up. The legislature has said... The people said in 2004, I believe, fund our schools at 55%, 2003, 2004, fund our schools, and we have failed. I was in the legislature. I failed. For 10 years, we failed to do what the people demanded. And I think when you continue to fail to do what the people are looking for, you're going to get referendum. We saw it in the city of Portland when the, le- when the city council was passing stuff that the people disagreed with, like the sale of Congress Square. People stepped in and said no. And that's an okay system by my perspective. Now, I would rather that we don't govern by referendum because I think you can make some mistakes. There's no doubt. You can make mistakes, but the legislature does it too. But this is an important one. Have we ever had five referendum in one year? 
Never. What does that tell you? Well, it, it, it tells you that we have a dysfunctional state government, but, but this particular question, you know, aside from the other questions we talked about, by the way, we have Portland mayor, Ethan Strimling in the studio. That particular question to me represents the pitchforks coming out, you know, people being dissatisfied with the state government. And if you ask the average person who, who's not, doesn't make over 200,000, should we tax these people more and, and there is some dispute on how that money will be accounted for and what school systems get the, the 3%. It's, it's not as clear as I think but you put it. But because it has to do has with winners and losers. Yeah. The but minimum it, wage, uh, the people got, uh, maybe there are, you know, uh, 1% of businesses, 1% of people who own businesses in the state of Maine that would have to increase their wages probably said, I don't want to do this, right? Not all of them, sure. but some. Does that mean that they should rule because 1% says? So why would 1% say, oh, we're only going to say because the 1% says no, the because, 99% don't get to say yes? Because the 1% or the 99% who voted or, you know, it wasn't the 99% weren't affected by the, by the incremental though. tax. They're affected because their kids positive, don't get as good of, the kids don't positive. get as good of a ge- education. Well, I'm talking about the, the cost or, or, or the 3% tax. Yeah. And the issue is, I think that we should put more money into education. But so, if the legislature had passed it, would you have supported it? Absolutely. If the if the legislature goes through, because this, the way the system works is, they have economists, they have a budget department, they have cause and effect. There's an outflow right now. You could almost see it on 95 people rushing out of Maine going to Florida. But that's just and, not true. I think I, it is true. And if you look at if you look at our economy for six years. But and, if you and, look at our economy is stagnant. If you look at the yeah, if you look at every that's metric. Not because millionaires are leaving our state. I, I was on let me give you an okay. example. The the estate tax. I was on the taxation. Every year they would come forward and try to reduce the estate tax or eliminate the estate tax because they said people were leaving. But the problem with that conclusion was that we kept seeing the estate tax go up every year. So clearly, and one of the issues in the state of Maine is that older people are moving here. So if the estate tax is causing people to leave, why are older people coming here? Because they're going to be the ones who ultimately have to pay it. So there isn't this. Now, there, of course, are some examples. But when we look at our economy, we Governor have the LePage second highest state tax. And, and, I, you know, and I, I appreciate the, the theory and the abstract, and I respect your time in government. But as somebody who pays annually, both directly and indirectly, millions of dollars of taxes, I have a view that is both personal and professional. Are and, you leaving? Um not today, but from talking to people, what we keep and doing. And why don't you leave? Because you've got a business here, you've got a family here, because we, it's we an have environment a, you want to be in. But we have a dysfunctional business system. And what keeps happening is instead of the legislature doing its job and coming up with real, uh, real hard policy. And when I say hard policy, it's saying to many people in the state, in the rural, typically in the rural areas, the economy isn't coming back. You know, Intel isn't building a tech center in Milo. That stuff's not happening. So when the political system and typically the progressives say, elect us, we care about you, we're going to help you, we're going to feed you, and we're going to give you, we're not being honest. We're trapping people in a cycle of poverty. And what's happened is to pay for these things, we keep raising these tax hurdles, which stop outside capital. But come My on, taxes Steve, haven't taxed. Of course they have. Governor LePage has dropped the top marginal tax rate in the state. I mean, all that we did was basically regain what 
Governor LePage had already given. And were you complaining when Governor LePage said the top tax rate, which used to be around uh, over 8%, was now dropped down to, what, 695 were you complaining that the wealthy never, got the huge tax cut? I've never level? complained for one day the taxes that I pay, either federal taxes or state or right, my local property say, taxes. Wait a minute, it's not fair. You're reducing my taxes, but not theirs? My, my, because that's what Governor LePage did. And so all we did was take that back, and only for a very select group. Most people in the state of Maine are not because they didn't get much impact when the taxes were reduced, right? If you were under $100,000, you were getting like 30 bucks a year. It was not helping did, did you at you all. Did you see the commercials in question, too? Did you see the? Did you see how people were characterized? And again, I'm 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 not describing it verbatim, but one commercial run by you know the, you know the yes on question two people, which was the main teachers union, which will yeah. benefit from the taxes specifically targeted to hiring more teachers. They'll pay more dues. They'll have more political power. But one of the ads were it showed some kind of yuppie guy in like a sports car saying, "Hey, this guy hasn't paid his fair dues." Let's get them. It vilified people who made a certain amount of money. It characterized people as being out of touch and over $200,000 being. It didn't characterize or, or, or represent in mean many of people who make over that amount, many people who contribute to our economy are small that, business okay. owners that work Fine. and bust their ass, hire people, put money into the economy. And so there aren't Look, that many people I, I, running okay. around in a Ferrari if going, let's like make this guy pay more. Fine. But that's the, the, that's political tactics. Let's, let's move beyond political tactics of a campaign and get to policy. Right. And policy is, as you and I were talking about earlier, there is a widening income gap. And one of the ways you deal with a widening income gap is that those that can afford it should be able to pay more into our economy so that you can use that money to educate kids better. I think we would both agree better education for kids is one of the best ways to reduce the income gap. Raise my taxes 100% if the legislature wants to do it. And if the federal, I have never in my entire life of paying taxes at any age or in any kind of economic strata have complained about it because I do believe in government. I do believe in social service. I do believe in education. The issue, and I think this is where, you know, you and Phil kind of hug and move on to the next subject. The issue I had was it shouldn't have been a referendum thing. It shouldn't have been okay, a pitchfork it, tactic. It, it should have been. It should have been. Did you vote for the gun background check? Uh I think we need much stronger gun background checks. So I, did I, you think that shouldn't have been on the referendum? The legislature will never pass gun regulate. I was chair of criminal justice committee. I would walk in there with a bill and I would lose almost every time 12 to 1. They will never pass it. I know. So it, did you it, vote for it? Of course. Right. I, 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 so I, in that instance, did you feel like this should not be on the ballot and I'm going to vote against it because the legislature didn't get it done? No. You voted for it because it was the right policy. It, the process is in place. They're allowed to do it. Once it gets there, you have to make a choice. Is it better policy or not? Not simply, am I mad that it's there or not? On the minimum wage, did you vote for that? We pay above the minimum wage. We, yeah. we recognize the federal standard of 1010. I, I think that the wage disparity is, is a huge issue. So did you vote issue. for it? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Again, raise the minimum wage. That's because the legislature failed. So in those instances, you voted for them based on the policy, not some, even though from your perspective, they should not be on the ballot. But you voted for them based on the policy. So on question two... What I say is, let's debate the policy. The policy is, if we want to close the income gap, the wealthy can afford to pay more. Let's let's use that money to educate our kids. That's why it won, because people fundamentally want but more But your education. argument is, and, and then we'll move on, because I know that's what Phil would do. Your argument That's what is, Pat Callahan would make us do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Deb, you're supposed to jump in as Pat Callahan. Oh, this is so fascinating if we're, here. If we're role-playing here. But 
You're suggesting... Do you have as good of a jump shot as Phil does? Apparently he's a good basketball player. So. I have a pretty good... I've got this little Larry Bird thing from the oh, corner. Yeah, yeah, oh, I yeah. I do a little I do a little thing in the corner. I can I can hit the outside three. Okay. But the, the to, to end the question two debate, uh, you're suggesting that for people who are impacted relative to the tax, not the benefit... Um, that there's no negative consequence. No, My I, argument I is there, there's a negative consequence, and I believe the negative consequence of the 3% tax exceeds what you're describing as the benefit. And that's why I think specifically on taxation issues, you, you, you can no longer, you can no better ask people to tax a category of people that, that doesn't impact them directly on the tax thing than you can asking broadly do you support reducing all taxes ten percent to to uh, voters? Because you would you would it would be but destructive to government, right? But we did that. We had Tabor. We had Pileski. Those were in property tax. People rejected it because they saw the impact on themselves. But to say what you're saying to me is that the negative impact on perhaps let's say the ten or fifteen thousand people who are in this income bracket was so much greater than the tens of thousands of kids who are going to get a better education? I'm not saying there's no negative impact, but to say that the negative impact on 15,000 people outweighs the positive impact of educating hundreds of thousands of kids? No not, way. It's not 15,000 people. Not if they take businesses, not if they take their tax base out. There's a multiplier. But we're going to move on. We've got Mayor Ethan Strimling here. You're listening to Tide Smart Talk. How are you and Paula Page doing? Because at one point, even though you represent different political positions and different political ideology. I'm not sure, but I think he either visited Learning Works or you guys did, hugged yeah, or something, <laughs> and, and there was a sense that— Not sure we ever hugged, but yes. Well, your, your predecessor as mayor, uh, Mayor Brennan, didn't have that— In fact, I had him here a few years ago. This was kind of uh, it was a surprise to me, but when Mayor Brennan was here in the studio two years ago, was that I right? I think so, yes. I said, well, you're mayor of the largest city and, um, you know, our governor, Paul LePage, how often do you guys, you know, get together and talk? Uh, is there a bat phone that you have where you have direct contact with our governor? And he's like, I haven't talked to him in months and months. He, he literally won't talk to me. Mm. And I was like, he won't talk to you. You're the mayor. Shouldn't you be able to just, you know, you, you oversee, uh, you know, the, the biggest city and the, the portal to me. So, and then you were elected and very close relationship. Are you guys still getting along? Do you go we to the do. Blaine house? Do you guys have like beef stew and bread or what, what do you guys do? I have, I've been up to the Blaine house a couple of times and uh, had lunch and usually there, uh, we meet for a couple hours. We just talk politics a lot and we talk a lot of policy. It's been, um, I will say this. I mean, the two of us don't agree on the time of day. We have very different uh, visions in a lot of areas in terms of how we would get things done. Is he reasonable? It's subjective. Yeah. And obviously he has very strong views. And I think he, does. he, has he very was strong. He and was he will a, argue his views. And he will. What I am pleased with is that when I call him, he picks up the phone. I appreciate that. We sort of said, look, let's not fight in the newspapers, right? Let's fight on the phone. If we have a disagreement, you're not going to find out about it in the newspaper from me. I, I will call you and say this is something I disagree with or let's see if we can work it out. And so when I call him, he picks up the phone and that's been a good relationship. It's We do fundamentally disagree on a lot of stuff. So we argue we have had some very strong arguments on the phone. But um, in the end, there is dialogue and that's a good thing. And I don't know what that will mean and down the road for the city of Portland. But I think you I hope people have seen 
that we are less embattled with Augusta than we have been in the past. And that's a good thing. But in the end, what we need to be able to do is make sure that people in Portland can have a better life and our economy is strong and the results will be what will matter, not simply a relationship. Uh, we have Mayor Ethan Strimling here from Portland. Before we start talking about city and city government, you know, we we're talking about Governor LePage. What's your view on what is kind of positioned as the north and the south of Maine or Governor LePage himself talks about people in Portland being out of touch and elite and, and I think that's morphed into both policy and how people talk about Maine as one state where, you know, the people down in the southern part of the state where there is more business, more economic activity, and to be blunt, more wealth, there's almost a resentment. And that's seeped into both campaigns and policy and political discussions as opposed to looking at it as, hey, there's a strong economic engine that could benefit and is benefiting the whole state. There's a lot of taxation that ultimately goes through the state budget office, and so it benefits the whole state. How do we get to a point where a big part of the state, percentage-wise, looks at the southern part of the state with resentment and disdain? And as the mayor of Portland, what's your view on how that bodes for budget discussions and policy discussions when it almost feels like we have to be defensive? Mm. And for people in rural Maine where there's some real tragedies, but in my view— it's not based on, it's not really impacted by flawed policy, you know, flawed policy that hasn't addressed it, but new economy and old economy has changed. And the textile mills and the timber, so some bad things have happened, but I don't think it's our fault, or I don't think it's Southern Maine's fault, but it feels like that's the narrative now, like we don't get it and people in the South, and, and that's seeped into all kinds of areas of disagreement and bad policy. I don't, I guess I would characterize it a little differently. I, I don't think that people see it as our fault. I think people see it as we're doing pretty well down here and we're not doing as well up here. So invest more uh, energy and time into helping us because Portland's doing pretty well. And I can understand that. The conversation I try to change is recognize that when Portland's doing better, that provides more resources. When we talk about the gap between the wealthiest and uh, the rest of us, Portland in this area can be seen as obviously some of the wealthiest part of the state. And so we have a responsibility to the rest of the state. But the stronger we are down here, the stronger there will be up there. Look, when I first got to the Senate, I, I won't name the person that I talked to, but uh, I sat down with, you know, one of the one of the stalwarts of the legislature. And that person looked at a map and said, I'll never say this publicly, but I know very well that the more sales tax revenue that happens in the city of Portland means the more sales tax revenue I get up here in my part of the state. And they recognize it. I don't think the legislature is as down on Portland as people say. I think the legislature recognizes we have to be strong and they provide some level of resources. We always would like more. We're always trying to strive to be able to get as much as we can because the stronger we are, the stronger the rest will be. But the issue about us and them, that's politics. You know, that's always the game. You have to have an enemy in politics, unfortunately. We even see it in the city of Portland. Sometimes it's on peninsula versus off peninsula. Like those are two Portlands. And it's crazy. We are all the same Portland. We have very similar values all across the city. And we need to make sure that those values are sustained, pushed, especially under the new administration and what we're seeing coming from, uh, what we fear we will see coming from Washington, D.C. Right. And we will talk about Portland, but before we move on, Deb, you spend a lot of time at the Blaine House too, Deb. 
Does everyone, Emily, are you up at the blame? I, I mean, I've wanted to meet with our governor for years. Has he ever come on the show? No. In really? fact, I was on an airplane sitting next to him, not the direct seat, but across the aisle. And I've written to his press office. That sounds like the name of a show. It is. I was on. Across the aisle. Across the aisle. Well, he had his uh, state police security detail, and I think I was deemed a a threat. (laughs) Emily, have you you been up there, too? I have not. Okay. So I just. Blaine House is very nice. You should go up there sometime. I mean, it's uh, it's nice. When you say I should go up there sometime, I think I need an invite. If I just show up. Governor Baldacci never invited you? Um, No. I don't, you know, I should. A man of your power and significance should have been invited to the play. Maybe you're not as powerful and significant. See, Deb, this is where it turns. This is where it turned. (laughs) Two years ago when Ethan came on, this is where he turned because he does it. it, it, It's like this. It's very subtle. And then before you know it, you're bruised. And then it's boom. Because he's very good at this. Look, if you really want to go to the Blaine house, go on a Saturday morning. I believe you can get in. That's right. Open house. Just pop in, go in and meet the governor. You could. I'll go with you. They do tours too. You could probably just go through and do a tour. Yeah, that's. uh, I I, I may sign up, uh, Deb. (laughs) But let me ask you: Have you ever called the governor and said, "I'd like to come up and get a tour of the Blaine House," or "I'd like to come up and have fifteen minutes of hangout time, maybe have a glass of water with you"? I uh, I've I've talked to his people, but as soon as we get done with this interview, I'm going to get his number from you, and I will call him. (laughs) And say, my good friend uh, Ethan Strimling suggested I go up and have a glass of water. You can't. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. know if that's. You know, he would want to do that. But I brought a bottle of wine actually to one of them. So that, and uh, we had a nice little glass of wine. So that was nice. Well, that's bound to help, Steve. I'm yeah. an eggnog. Maybe fan. that's it. Did you bring a bottle of wine? Have you? No, ever... I'm more of an eggnog guy because you know this is the season. Hood has just released their vanilla eggnog. I love and it. what do oh, you? Yeah. Uh, do you uh, put in put, my eggnog? Do you put a little something something in there? Yeah, I'm kind of a purist. I like the egg, I, the way eggnog was invented. Just uh, I like my. Was eggnog. the way eggnog is invented? I don't know how not, eggnog. No, was. no, no little spice to give you no, a little, feel, I'm, a little warm I'm, feeling. I'm gonna call as soon as we get off uh, off the air. I'm gonna call. I don't know if I can give you the bat phone number. I can't. You, I can't give I you the bat you, phone. You number. You have the direct number, don't you? You have like the cell phone, the number, the beeper, all that stuff. The I'll, beeper. I'll, I'll go now, through. Wait a I'll go through. Uh, See yeah. now, when you say things like the beeper, it's so hard for me to resist. I mean, it's not that it's I'm like trying 1990s. to bruise you. Exactly. When were you born that you are now talking about a beeper? I was reflecting. I was reflecting on the governor's technology. I was reflecting oh. on the sense. You know, I was trying to I be respectful of got, the office. Oh, I see. I okay. bet you has a beeper. I bet you can beep the governor. I bet you can. We'll check with Ray. I don't know if he's got the old like the old old pagers that kind of go on your. Well, you I'm know, gonna, they uh, would buzz, and you'd look down and see what's the number coming in. Well, I'll send them a telegram. I'll send them something. <laughs> By the way, we have Mayor Little Ethan pigeon. Strimling here from Portland. You're listening to Tide's Morning Talk. We haven't even talked about Portland. So mm, let's, great let's, city. It's a fantastic city. It is. When are you going to move to Portland? It's surprisingly small in terms of Portland Metro is mm. significant, but what is the population of Portland itself? Is About 67. Uh, yeah, which is kind of counterintuitive. It is the yep. biggest state. You think it's bigger, but Portland Metro uh, is probably four hundred thousand. But it's it's still you know the key is the city itself. Yeah, I mean it's the obviously the biggest city in the state, and so and it's the biggest city by far. We could, as I often like to say, we could cut Bangor in half, and they still. I mean, we cut Portland in half, and Bangor would still be the. Uh, third largest city so we we, we are I'm, a sure, significant I'm sure bangor likes to hear that i know but i like uh, to throw that out there but since them, you've but, been elected but the metro region as you said about a quarter million you were elected last uh, november 2015 um 
first of all, there's been quite a bit of news lately. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. No, what the, well, about well, Trump or a new appointment or? Well, are we boy, talking about you? Uh, you some, some you have the uh, the Jitsu kind of deflection <laughs> thing down, just like Trump. Uh, no, you, <laughs> I don't you, think he uh, the, deflects. The, he likes to dive right into it. He do, do he'll I tweet about it? Uh, when you came in a few minutes ago, there, there was no olive branch for me. Yeah, and after you know, yeah, obviously, how many? You, 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 how many did I didn't you get? think I needed an olive branch. See, I didn't realize. Are you that buying came... them in quantity? I, I want to know if, <laughs> no, you, if you're I've getting bought... if you're getting a bargain. You know, they, yeah, yeah, it, no, if you buy in bulk. Yeah, no. So what I'm speaking of, and I think many of our <laughs> listeners are familiar with, over the last few months, there has been uh, some reports that there's been some contentiousness in Portland city government, and. The, the general overview, I think, is that you were elected as mayor last November. And from being on the outside, my view is that years ago when the Portland City Council and there was a vote uh, to, ha- to change the charter and to have a strong mayor, it was a public vote, that the charter itself, I think it's a little bit vague, but there's been a couple legal opinions that are kind of specific on it. But when you were elected mayor, and I'd like for you to kind of describe in your words, but I'll describe it in my, my outside view, is you've, you see or you have seen your role as mayor as having um, greater command and control over some elements of city government beyond just being a, a voting member of the council. And the city manager, in this case John Jennings, has a very clearly detailed role who he has kind of the fiduciary and the business and the financial oversight at the city. And then the council has their own uh, ultimate constitutional role to vote. In fact, they, they determine who the city manager is. And it feels like those three roles between city manager, the council as a whole, and your role as mayor, all three parties have a little bit of a different view. And it's kind of come out publicly in the last few months that, um, they don't like yours, and and there's been some disagreement. Again, it's cutting <laughs> to the chase, but and you know, and I'm not going to go through the eight stories because Emily, our producer here, is she's she's printed out memos from lawyers and um, internal records, extent of ongoing power struggle. So, do, do I have it right? Do the three different entities that I described have a little bit of a different view? And and where are things today? Because last week it was reported that you, you know, with the swearing in for the new counselors, you brought olive branches, which were a nice touch. But did I recap the last few months? And let's talk about that. And then let's look forward to where you see this going now. What I would say, I, I wouldn't necessarily characterize the way you have characterized what the three um, bodies think. I, I don't. I don't actually think there's a fundamental difference in terms of what the charter says. I think the issues that we are struggling with is how do you actualize the charter in the best way to meet the expectations of the people? And we're working out the kinks. And that's kind of what's going on. When when we changed the charter five years ago, we put in place an elected mayor for the first time for 90 years. What we have been struggling with is how to make that work because we still had a lot of the players and systems in place of what the mayor used to be. Now we have this new one. And what we haven't done, I don't think, is perhaps taken the time to really sit down and say, okay, how do we actualize what the people wanted when they wanted a more accountable mayor? 
I, I don't, I mean, for instance, as you were saying, I, I don't have any interest in running the day-to-day operations of the city. None at all. That is the, the city manager's job is to implement the policies that the mayor and the council put in place. That's fundamentally what the charter says. The issue is how do you actualize and operationalize what it is that people want? And that's what we're working through. Because remember, we, ele- we created this elected mayor five years ago. We've gone through two city man- uh, two mayors, four city managers, and 16 councilors. And we had this similar tension with between Mike Brennan and the council, between this mayor and the council, and with the city manager. There have been these issues that we're just trying to resolve. So what the way I look at it at the moment is we are trying to work through the kinks to get ourselves to a better place. And uh, I feel like we are getting there. These conversations are good to have uh, publicly. They're good to have internally. It gives us the opportunity to really try to resolve them. And I think we can. When you talk about resolution, um, I have Portland City Charter Section 5, which talks about the kind of the section that uh, governs uh, the mayor. The problem that I see is that I'll go with E, F, and G. Uh, E, to facilitate the implementation of city policies through the office of the city mayor. The word facilitate is a little bit vague. Mm. Through the office of the city manager. Does it, is it specific to the city manager? And then F, to consult with and provide guidance to the city manager. What does that mean? Mm. You know, and to consult with and provide guidance. I, I happened, I should disclose, I happen to know John Jennings. I consider him a friend. We've been involved in business together as co-owners of the main red claws i like him and respect him um is this not so much me i ethan well once i once i get beyond just the uh the 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 uh the the jealousy involving your acting background and your hair and you know you we've (laughs) talked about this before and you know i've been trying to get on television for years and they're like you're no ethan strimling you know like i know (laughs) steve you belong on radio right deb you know that i do you know that so yeah i'll just i have a long career on radio too i know but i'll get i'll be, be beyond my own kind of you know naked jealousy but is the issue is the issue that the charter itself needs to be amended for greater clarity for your role or is the issue because there's already been a legal opinion through the yeah. through the city council i, I believe I, I mean, believe you've asked for yeah. another opinion that cost twenty thousand dollars to no, get no, an outside, it, it, what, or somebody's a body yeah. is a body yeah so that cost taxpayers money but is it is it in the wording that needs to be refined because to, when you have such subjective phrases like to consult with to facilitate yeah It'll always be interpretive. Or is it in your relationship with John Jennings? Or is it, you know, wh- where is the resolution and where can the government of Portland move so this isn't an issue for the next three years of you being there? I, I hope that it's not that we have to change the charter. I, I don't, I'm not there. I think that the charter actually, what it demonstrates is a very collaborative relationship between the mayor and the city manager and the council and trying to make sure that people work together. That's what words like facilitate mean to me. That's what mer- words like provide guidance, incorporate um, policy ideas, whatever those pieces are that are very important in our conversation. It's really about how do we as a as a body actualize what those say. You're right. You've gone to some areas where there's interpretation and you have to look at it just like in our constitution. There's interpretation. It's not black and white. And at the moment, we're having a conversation about how do we make that work? I think that's a good thing for us to do because we haven't, we kind of got this new charter, we got an elected mayor, and we just drove. And 
Uh, we learned some things. We've had a few bumps in the road, and now we're in a place where it's really important that we work out the kinks. I think the charter can work, and that's what ultimately this is about the people of the city. How do we pass the policies, rebuild our elementary schools? How do we make sure that we're having protections in place for tenants? How do we make sure that we're really uh, – getting the best quality of life that we can for our residents. That's ultimately what people care about. They don't want us fighting about how our government works or it doesn't work. So let's get that resolved so that we can move forward. Uh, how would you characterize your professional relationship with John Jennings? Is that effective relative to your role as mayor and his role as city manager? Yeah. I mean, I think John Jennings is very effective at his job. I think John Jennings is um, a very um, effective administrator. I think he's a good leader of the staff. Uh, so those are those are very, very competent. And I think, uh, as you have pointed out, we just have to find the ways how we interpret these words, how we interpret how we work together and make that happen. And I think both of us are very committed to making sure that the city of Portland is successful. I'm the political leader of the city. He's the administrator of staff. The two of us have to work together. And I think we're committed to doing that. Uh, you're listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve News Talk to WLOB. Um, my perspective is that Portland is critical to both the this area of Maine, but for Maine itself. So I wish you success. I wish uh, you. your colleagues in city government success. And uh, thank you for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. It was, very, uh, it was fun as always. As always. That has been uh, Mayor Ethan Strimling. And you've been listening to Tide Smart Talk with Steve News Talk to WLOB. We'll be back next week. Thank you.